The political philosopher John Gray is the former professor of European thought at the London School of Economics. His best-selling books include Straw Dogs, False Dawn, The Delusions of Global Capitalism, and Black Mass, Apocalyptic Religion and the Death of Utopia. His new book, Seven Types of Atheism, is published by Alan Lane. We asked Nick Spencer, research director at Theos and author of Atheists, The Origin of the Species, to sit down with Gray to talk about the book, as well as his philosophical and political journey. The conversation was recorded in quite a busy hotel bar in central London. You can read an edited version of their conversation in this week's paper, and a longer version on our website. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. One of the things I particularly liked about, about the book was you were quoting um, Voltaire and Hume and Kant on unapologetically racist Absolutely. views. Now, that, as an aside, I think what's fascinating is that the way for a lot of the atheists you write about, the Enlightenment has become almost like the incarnation. It's become the new dispen- dispensation. So talk, talk a little bit about, about your debunking of that Enlightenment mythology. Well, um, I suppose it's not altogether news that there was a racist element in the thinking of some of the major Enlightenment figures. What I wanted to suggest in this new book on atheism, however, was that the racist element wasn't an incidental prejudice that they'd have as men of the time, but was actually central in many ways to their Enlightenment worldview. Because there is, of course, a common defence, which I've heard countless times, <laughs> I could, where people say, well, there were men of their time, everyone had these prejudices. And I think that fails for two reasons. One is the simple reason that they claim to be the intellectual leaders of the time. They weren't the 18th century or 17th century version of the taxi driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were someone who could give authority and intellectual weight to these prejudices, and that's what, what, what they did. The second is that their racism was integral to the view they all held, Kant, uh, Voltaire and Hume, the three great Enlightenment thinkers, no one would doubt that, uh, at least in the 18th century, uh, which was that only one kind of civilization was consistent with Enlightenment and reason. That was a developed version of the civilization that existed in Europe, but purged of its Christian and monotheistic, at least this is certainly what Voltaire thought, Kant of course not, because he held purged of its monotheistic and uh, Jewish and Christian elements, that would be the uh, highest civilization that had ever existed, higher than any that had existed before, but it would also replace all the other civilizations, that's the key point. Not only that, it was the top, as they thought, all the others would disappear or die out. So they weren't just less developed or primitive, or uh, uh, sometimes for reasons which Voltaire connected almost with, uh, partly from from doctrines he took from earlier theology, but also primitive scientific. They were destined to disappear. They were destined to die out. And so I think that's a kind of a radically, it's also very Europocentric in a way that Christianity never was. Um, uh, it's radically Europocentric, but also it's um, explicitly uh, a doctrine of um, 
of hierarchy with a strong racial component. So it's integral to their way of thinking. It's not just something that can be airbrushed out. You spend some time in the book and other books debunking Enlightenment mythology. And um, I'm conscious that you're not a particularly confessional writer. You don't write much about yourself. But I want to know a little bit more about your um, intellectual formation that, that leads you to that. Um, and I, I kind of sense as well in much of your writing that you 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 do a lot of debunking. Mm. You take orthodoxies and you seek to undermine them. Why? Why? Why, why is that you? Well, my orient I mean, the, 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 the school of philosophy, I don't identify myself with any school of philosophy, but the school of philosophy which attracts me the most, I suppose, are the various strands and traditions that are usually put together under skepticism. Yeah. Uh, I think Joseph Conrad, one of my intellectual, my sort of favorite writers and one of the figures in, in my new book that I praise a lot um, said um, skepticism is the tonic of the mind and I think um, um, the life of the mind consists of questioning its um, the beliefs that one has acquired but also the dominant beliefs of the age because I mean you know my academic training, although I'm no longer an academic, was in the history of ideas and in philosophy as well, of course. And of course, if you look at the history of ideas and you look at it carefully and dispassionately, what you find is that uh, uh, it's absolutely replete with absurdities. The history of ideas is no more progressive than the rest of the human, the human events. Um, fashions, absurdities, fads. Uh, now we have a kind of raging counterculturalism in the humanities and the social sciences which is uh, reflexively hostile to anything that fed into the Western tradition, especially Judaism and Christianity. Judaism, Judaism as well, because one of the most malignant features both in politics recently, that's outside our brief here, but of course the recurrence of anti-Semitism, among which I've written widely. Who expected that? Two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, who expected that? I guess it's my skeptical orientation and my belief that, uh, which of course Christians and others wouldn't necessarily accept, uh, that uh, a good human life can actually be embodied in skepticism or doubt. Now, of course, one of the things I like about many traditions in Christianity as against secular thinking is that they have coexist, is that they've learned to live or coexist with doubt over millennia. Yeah. Well, starting at least with Augustine. Yes. Uh, uh, but uh, whereas um, in secular thinking, especially of the militant variety. I don't know if you can think of any, there's very little of that. The, well, the only person I could think of maybe would be someone like Bertrand Russell. In yes. some of his writing. In some of his writing, yes. Not, not, all. not all. Not all at all. Um, but, but also, I once described you in a review of one of your books as um, a very um, scriptural thinker whose Bible ends at Genesis 3, mm. by which I mean that I, I, I detect that the, 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 you have great deal of sympathy with the Christian doctrine before, and its implications for human fallibility and uh, reservations the about myth, yes, yeah, yeah about about what yeah. how much we can know. Well, I suppose in this respect, I'm a bit I like Nietzsche. Nietzsche liked the Old Testament. Mm. Um, I mean, I admire Jesus as a figure, and I have various observations in the book about that, skeptical observations. Mm. Uh, but um, I'm attracted to the Genesis myth, and of course, also the story of Job, which to me is more profound, even though at the end of it, of course, he accepts God, 
it's more profound than many of the things in Socratic philosophy. And because actually, though Socrates was represented as a great questioner, he never questioned the underlying belief that truth and goodness are one, or that the world was a logical order. He never questioned that. Whereas the questioning in the, in the, in the, in the joke story, I think, is very profound. And of course, another one of my, um, probably picked this up as less educated readers wouldn't, but you would have done, is I'm very critical of the Hellenizing of um, biblical and Jewish and Christian thought. Uh, to me, a more profound, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not that deep an admirer of Greek philosophy. Um, I'm an admirer of Greek drama, tragic drama. Because it's tragic, yeah. <laughs> Partly yes. because it's tragic. Uh, um, uh, but not of um, Greek um, uh, philosophy. And so the attempt, the, um, the indefatigable uh, Western attempt, it's a big, big fissure in Western intellectual traditions, of course, to reconcile Athens and Jerusalem. I don't think works, and that's one of the reasons I cite this rather little-known thinker, um, who I used to discuss with Isaiah Berlin quite a lot when I knew, because he admired him. Although he, Isaiah, of course, was in no sense uh, he was in, in, a, in certain ways a practicing Jew, but he wasn't a believer. No. Categorically not. Yeah. We discussed uh, Shestov, yes, the, yeah, right the, the Russian-Jewish Phidias yeah. uh, figure, who started as a Nietzschean, by the way, interestingly. Uh, and the burden of his entire work, uh, especially of his last great book, Athens and Jerusalem, uh, is that uh, this attempt, which he finds in Spinoza, even in Spinoza, and in Hegel, and, and uh, Aquinas and medieval thought, reconciling Athens and Jerusalem breaks down. And I think that's, that's actually true, at least that's my, my view of it. So it is true that what I like, but you see the two features in a way of, we mentioned Job's, the story of Job and, and the Genesis story, although they're not elements in a skeptical philosophy, they are profound doubts, which you don't find in Greek thought in the same way. Much more where, where, where is there in Greek thought, Greek philosophy, ancient Greek, where is there any doubt about the, the value of knowledge? Nowhere, I would say, would you? Even the skeptics pretty well accept that. I mean, maybe not, I don't know, maybe not Pyrrho or Sectus Empiricus, but even the skeptics um, uh, hardly question the underlying logic of the cosmic order, yeah. the yeah. way the early biblical um, texts do. So that's what I like about them. So I'm glad you mentioned Isaiah Berlin because um, he, quite was, an influence on me. he was quite influenced on you, and particularly his stubborn insistence on value pluralism. Yes, yes. As an aside, I, I wonder whether that's one of the reasons why you know you have a certain attraction to um, to, the, to the Christian and Jewish scriptures because they they are it's a very plural book. You know, you yes. you alongside you know the desperation of, of Job, you have a, a the, the Psalms which are Solomon. equally and Solomon and you and, and, and you have Psalms which are equally empty. That, that's right. So despairing I mean, almost. You, you, you couldn't, I think, legitimately. Um, describe Christianity as value pluralist, but there is an awareness mm. of the full range and variety of human experience, of, of human experience. And, and, and even under religious experience, because the one writer on the one philosophical writer on religion that I admire is James William James. Oh, yes, yeah, varieties of uh, religious experience. experience. A, a way, not just that there are varieties of religion, yeah, 
and if he'd been around, he would have, I think, agreed with the varieties of atheism, but also of human experience in, in general, yeah. very wide. Well, I was very struck by the end of the book, in which you, you more or less say that there are schools or trends of atheist thoughts that become very close yeah. to apophatic yes. theology, to negative theology, to draw the line. with which I think you, you, you have a lot of sympathy. Yeah, I do, yes, I do. Uh, I mean, it can go both ways. I mean, Schopenhauer, who I take as one of the thinkers that held to a certain kind of apophatic theology, kind of equivocates as to whether there's anything, so to speak, there or whether it just thought sort of runs out and leaves you with uh, an impasse. Yeah. And at times he holds to the Buddhist view that there is, uh, because he says when we get glimpses of this, whatever it is, there's nothing there, they're all good, beauty, selflessness, ethics and aesthetics are both based on it. So it must be good if that's true. So that would be like an apophatic deity. On the other hand, sometimes he says, well, in any human terms, it's nothing at all. Mm. And of course, interestingly, I sort of point this out that uh, Schopenhauer was an important figure for Conrad, and in Conrad's last great novel, Victory, is all about the limitations of Conrad's, mm. of uh, Schopenhauer's philosophy. Very um, ironical uh, novel, uh, Victory by, uh, by Conrad. You see, what it would go with would be a kind of radically pragmatic view of science and human knowledge. Mm which is that scientific human knowledge, even in its rigorous scientific form, enables us to sort of navigate our way through the world for as long as it does. But it's not a Platonistic view of science. It's a pragmatic view of science. It might just, we might actually just be lucky in being part, in part of the universe which is orderly. And it might not be orderly forever. It might suddenly, then it won't work anymore. And there are fully-fledged philosophies of science, C.S. Peirce, the... Uh, American pragmatist James himself and others of an instrumentalist and um, pragmatist sort. And the whole tenor of the book, actually, starting with its definition of atheism, kind of, uh, is, is pragmatic. I mean, I say we, there, are, there can't be formal definitions, but of course people want some, readers want some idea of what you're talking about. So I, I give kind of loose pragmatic definitions of what I mean by atheism. So in one sense, atheism amounts to not very much. It's simply the uh, absence of the idea of a creator God of the whole world. And I point out that many of the world's religions, in that sense, are atheist religions, especially Buddhism. When you do come to define religion early on, your emphasis is not on a theory to explain, but as an attempt to acquire meaning and to detect meaning. And in your view, humans are fundamentally meaning-seeking animals. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Or meaning-making animals. Yeah. They are, and that's their strength, but it could also be seen as their weakness, because it makes them vulnerable to upset in a way that other animals aren't. Mm. Because first of all, all their stories, I mean if the meaning is embodied in some kind of story, terminated in death, and they're more aware of the fact of death, though not of its significance, we know no more of its significance or what can, if anything comes than any other animal. We're more, we appear to be more aware of it than other animals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I know elephants gather up, and, I mean, they seem, some mammals seem to have some Mm. awareness of that. Well, there are traces of meaning, aren't there, in, 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 in octopuses yeah. in, in, and, and um, elephants but not and much. primates. But yeah, they're, they're faint traces. But that's why, I mean, you are far more sympathetic to the idea of religion mm. 
than the vast majority of atheists writing today because you see it's fundamentally interwoven into well, it certainly human beings. It certainly can't be eliminated. If humans are meaning seeking animals, then, then religion can no more be eliminated than sex can be eliminated if human beings are all forms, sexual creatures, as Freud yeah. said. And as Adam Phillips pointed this out last night, I hadn't thought of it in these terms, he said that, you know, on the way that one of the messages of this book is that religion permeates everything in the way that Freud said sex permeates everything. If you repress it the way the Victorians did, then it comes out in sleazy and weird forms. Better to admit it, uh, it's not humanly universal, I mean, not every single human being has it. It seems to be pan-cultural, I would say. And certainly if you try to eradicate it from society, what you end up is with is some sort of state cult. And well, that's happened repeatedly. By the way, one of the sort of aspects of the unempirical, and even anti-empirical character of contemporary atheism is when you say, but look what happened in China or Soviet Union or Nazi Oh, it's nothing to do with atheism. Nothing to do with no Christianity, all the evils that it's been associated, it's all come from Christianity. But with atheism, none of the evils that come yeah. from atheism. Kicking over the traces. I mean in one sense that's true, but in not a very interesting sense. In one sense what they're saying is true because if you just take atheism in this very minimal negative formulation, which meaning the absence of the idea of the Creator God, then of course nothing follows from it, logically. But historically, whenever atheism has been organized as a movement or has acquired power in a state, yeah. it's always, I think that could be said, always um, become a repressive cult. Well, one of the always. features of you know the emergence of atheism is that it comes in a thickly Christian culture, yeah. and therefore the statement, there is no God, mm. is untenable in public. It has to be, there is no God, and therefore... There is humanity, or there or is... Or there is science, or whatever it is. So, so from those kind of fundamentally destructible parasitic seeds, atheism has always had to be a creative phenomenon in order to justify its position Well, to put it in a different way, as I say somewhere in the book, oh, a, a world from which the Christian God has been removed is still a Christian world. So an atheist world, in the modern sense, is still a, a, a monotheistic world. They haven't stepped out of that. They haven't. They haven't stepped out of monotheism because that means, in a sense, the atheism that the atheisms that can really step out might be more threatening or chilling to you as a Christian than the ones I'm attacking. Because if you really step out of it, which Nietzsche tried but failed. Schopenhauer more successfully did and ended up with this kind of mystical atheism. Um, it'll be further out because uh, because one of the things that will um, affirm or accept, I should say, rather than affirm, would be that history has no redemptive meaning. Hmm. It's succession of events. It's uh, as the ancient historians would put it, uh, the rise and fall of civilizations is like uh, the growth and decline of a forest. There are periods of rising civilization, um, of improvement, of progress. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, we haven't talked about progress. Yeah. And, and you, you, you but then, but, but not of progress in the modern sense where what is gained is somehow kept. You see, the, the key point, it's a terribly simple point, but I don't think it'll ever be understood because people are too saturated in the idea of progress and of the background monotheistic. They, they just can't understand it any more than Homer. I know there wasn't a person Homer, but any more than people in the age of Homer would have understood the modern idea of progress. Even though most human cultures up till about 300 
years ago. Yeah. Didn't have more than an idea of progress. It's got such a vice-like hold on modern thinking that people can't do it. Even very intelligent reviewers of my book say, he says that progress is not inevitable. It's nothing to do with inevitability. Most of the Enlightenment thinkers didn't think progress was What they thought, however, was that what had been gained in human civilization could not permanently be lost. In other words, they thought of um, human advance, let's call it, uh, as a cumulative growth. Securely cumulative, yes. Yeah, securely cumulative. You might advance five steps and then go back two, uh, but then you'd go ahead three. You being a collective agency, humankind, which of course doesn't exist for monotheists or or Buddhists, or in other words, the collective agency, human time, is a figure inherited from monotheism, mm -hmm. and particularly from Christianity, I think. But let's, let's pull apart this, because yeah. um, uh, I, want, I want to come on to some areas later that we'll we, we, we disagree, so um, moving moving towards those, uh, you, I mean, you, you're right, clearly, to see the modern secular protection of progress being derived from a kind of Christian idea of the linearity of history, as and opposed to the circularity of it. And but you do hint a few times in the book about how within the Christian tradition there is a sense that history can be redeemed from within history, and that's not really a Christian view that you know the, the message of, 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 of revelation is that the fundamental final consummation comes from outside of human agency history can be can be moved and it is and time is linear and so on and so forth but the idea that redemption occurs within history on account of human agency no no I that's not a history no, I know, a Christian I, well, view, it needn't be anyway but but remember there still is the fact that in in Christianity uh, history contains redem rede uh, profoundly redemptive events, such as the appearance of Jesus. And um, on the view that I take, which is more like the Buddhist view or the Hindu view or the Taoist view or even the ancient Greek and Roman view, um, uh, history is um, um, a succession of contingent events going nowhere in particular. Particular civilizations or human groups can form purposes and do. And as I mentioned earlier, there can be periods of advance within a particular way of life or a tradition. But the idea of a universal history is one I'm very skeptical of, and which I think has in fact, here we probably might disagree, has in fact been historically quite harmful. Um, so you hold to what Heller's view about history being a trash uh, trash bag blown open by the wind. You know that one. <laughs> yes, that's yes. a good. Or what was it? Shemasini said, uh, "History has all the logic and meaning of an abattoir." Scary <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, view. Yes, but uh, um, but it's not necessary because it means there's it means an awful lot is contingent. I mean, for one thing, you're freed from the tyranny of historical laws. Which Hegel and then Marx and then even Mill, mm. although he never formulated any of them, uh, thought that uh, there were some kind of unfolding laws of history that somehow, uh, 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 and which nowadays people, of course, wheel that view in to prop up liberalism. Mm. Um, well, I noticed how in your chapter on political religions, yeah. alongside, you know, after the Nazism. millenarian cult, <laughs> Jacobinism, Marxism, and you slip in evangelical liberalism and, right yeah, at yeah, the end, yeah. which I thought was a, a bit unfair. I mean, I, I, point, I know the point you're making about liberal attempts to remake the world order, but... And all these wars recently. Yeah. 
it's still on quite a, a, a lower a lower scale than it the is. political oh, yes. religions of the past, oh, mercifully. Uh, well, it's had less human casualties. That is true, but it's the same impulse. But that, that, I mean, the impulse. I mean, the background idea is this is what the human species really secretly, quintessentially wants. Yes. Even if large numbers of it, yeah. or even a majority, mm. reject these mm. views. Mm. But there's also a fundamental. You see, here's one of the cruxes which I think liberals can't face, which because it's part of the self-definition of liberalism. Maybe all liberalism, but certainly liberalism now, that it is universalist. But on my account, you see, since I'm not a theist. Liberalism is a particular way of life or a family of ways of life inherited from Judaism and Christianity. Specifically, not from Islam, although that's had cheap pluralistic political orders, but from these two. So it's a particular way of life. So on my view, there's no reason to expect it ever to be universal. And so I distinguish between a kind of a liberal form of life which Think, as I say, it's it's a, it's, a, it's 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 one of the more civilized forms of life that human beings have invented uh, for living living together. It's it's not the only form of life. I mean, we can imagine. I mean, Hume, I think, was good on this. Uh, he writes that some of the most civilized orders are kind of aged absolutisms, which are very tolerant and very... And by the way, one of the things which I think we have inherited from Judaism and Christianity, which is very important, is something which very, very important, which is something which is featured hardly at all in liberalism today, is tolerance. The modest Vivendi liberalism that I've developed, trying to do in, in earlier yeah. works. That's completely... Can you think of any of the new atheists who mentions the term tolerance? Can you? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, done, it's done as a kind of uh, as, as a kind of um, sort of window dressing, really. I don't even mention it. It's, I don't. I think I don't think I've seen it once in Dennett. I mean, maybe it's there somewhere, but it's not in the list of the virtues. It's not in Pinker. You know, there are kind of a list of these fundamental uh, things that are nowhere toleration. And yet, it was very important. It was, in a sense, the founding practice. It came from wars of religion, of course, wars within Christianity. But it was the founding practice of modern liberal society. Well, Locke's letter concerning toleration is like an extensive exercise in biblical exegesis, isn't so it? So is Milton. Yes, 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 of course. So there we are. Yeah. So you favour a much more agonistic liberalism, don't you? One which is a, an attempt to face up to conflict, of face up to conflict, and deal with them as best as possible, rather than rather than implement any pragmatic attempt. Rather than and also rather than thinking that a, a point will come in the progress of human affairs where they don't apply, because mm. that's what liberals really believe. I mean, that's say they might say, well, yes, there are these conflicts now in some parts of the world, for example, if we push for peace, we can probably only do that by, in many contexts, by overlook, by not pursuing the full rigour of justice. Uh, they say, but in the future, we'll be able to bring them all together. There's no reason to think that. See, that is, is one of the reasons people find my view on progress so chilling is that it means that um, uh, conflicts of the kind we face now in the world, some of them very profound, will keep occurring. I kind of take almost two stages in your career because up until roughly 2000, up until Straw Dogs, 
most of which you published was political theory. Mm. Some I was an academic. Yeah, well. a, a political, political theorist. And then philosophy, political, political philosophy, theory. yeah. And then posts, you know, straw dogs, you're engaging with much more, if I can use the word, metaphysical issues, including I suppose. Religions. In, in, including religions. Including religions, for example. Politically, you're kind of formed in the 70s and 80s, and you, you start on the left, you favour Thatcher, but then you move away from the I was never active rights. on the left, I should say that. I mean, I grew up in the northeast of England where, where there was a long-standing old Labour domination. And that was a default position for family, yeah. was it? Well, I, I, I mean, I knew even when I grew up there, I left when I was 20, but I mean, it was, it was corrupt. It, was, it had ma many of what would now be seen, rightly no doubt, as vices. It was rather patriarchal, it was rather, I wouldn't say it was racist, but it was a fairly closed form of life. But of course, it also had some fundamental decencies, which I think were inherited from the post-war settlement, and even from the Second World War itself which was a, a produced a kind of deep social cohesion, or revealed even a deep social cohesion in Britain, which was very valuable. So I started on the left, not in the sense of I've never been a Marxist, ever, or a communist, or a Trotskyist, or any of these. <laughs> That's on the record, we got that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I started in the sense of being... Um, Sort of temperamentally disposed to that yeah, solidaristic to community. The and then what happened is uh, the 70s, and what seemed to me to be happening in the 70s, quite clearly happening, although in universities the penny didn't drop until it had happened, until long after it had happened, was the unravelling of that post-war settlement. And maybe I was more sensitive to it because up in the north uh, it was obvious that the old industries were not only declining but were finished. And uh, something else would have to happen, something else would have to be developed. And um, then there were the great industrial conflicts of the, uh, the 70s. So from really from the early 70s, I went to the University of Essex in 1973 that I got my first position there in political philosophy. When I arrived there, I was already of the view that the post-war settlement was um, um, coming apart. And then this really happened, it serendipitously happened. I lived on campus and in the evenings I used to go to the rather fine library they had. Mm. Very good library there. And while away the evenings, uh, just pulling a book down, put books down for the shelf. And one of them I pulled down was F.A. Hyatt, Constitutional Liberty, being about being 1974. Never embraced the doctrine, which was a sort of um, mixture of cultural Darwinism, theories of evolution, mm. Radical free marketism and so on. It struck me that that was a it was a devastating criticism of the, of central planning and of socialism, and even had applications to some of the things I'd witnessed in the north. So in the north, one of the things I'd witnessed was that some of the biggest damage which had been done to social life, uh, to community life, had actually been done by the most progressive local authorities who knocked all the old houses down, rather than, as they could have done, at less cost and with less damaged community, improving them, right, right. just wipe them out. Take high rises. Not necessarily high rises. There weren't many high rises, right. at least in my part. Of it. It might have been in Newcastle, mine. but orbital estates at the edge of cities, and they were different in many ways. First of all, they were generationally segregated, which the old street communities were not. Yeah. Secondly, because people didn't know each other, whereas they had known each other for sometimes generations in the old street communities. I witnessed this myself. There was an immediate, uh, from almost no vandalism at all in the old street community. It really was like that. I mean, they were repressive in some ways. If you were gay or if you were a woman, you might be fine. Or if you were unusual, you just had to leave. But they were very close 
communities where there was practically no vandalism, um, used to suddenly vandalism broke. And the reason, I mean, one of the big reasons for that was you could take all these people who knew each other, shake them up like marbles, mm. put them in different streets, mm. um, and nobody knows anybody, and what do you get? So um, I thought that uh, this criticism of central planning, although nothing happened in any Western society that was remotely com comparable with what had happened in, in the Soviet Union, applied here too. Yeah. So I took that up and by 1974 I was in touch with 74, the fourth action, even beginning yes. uh, 75, I was in touch with the right-wing think tanks who I knew until, and sort of worked on and off with mm. until the late 80s when I broke with them and started criticizing Thatcher, uh, or Thatcherism. I actually never criticized her very much, hardly at all, but I began to criticize Thatcher as Thatcherism, as being an inverted form of Marxism. Mm. And I'm able to watch this uh, experiment political experiment from cl relatively mm. close quarters. Mm. Uh, that was fascinating. And um, so what, what I, that's interesting, so what I read from that then, yeah. in terms of your um, attraction to the right in the 70s, was as you saw in it uh, a way of undermining kind of these programmatic political ideologies of the left that tried to redesign. Social engineering. Yeah. Redesign society. But similarly, yeah. a decade or so later, Absolutely. your movement away from the right when it became the right became programmatic and and and, and you've got it exactly in, in, in right. It was the way. same reasoning. People see it as an inconsistency. It's almost monotonously consistent. I published one or two things. I published a thing called uh, Infamous on the Right. I published it through a right-wing think tank called Limited Government, a Positive Agenda, mm. which I said it should be concerned with the arts, with uh, mm. have some involvement in the arts, with distribution. There were heresies mm. for this. I mean, the smaller the government, the less it did, the better, according to yeah, yeah. I never accepted that. Yeah. That was about 87, 88, or something like that. And then in 89, in October 89, before the wall went down, but we need to be clear that communism was over, at least in the Soviet Union. Uh, I published my first attack on uh, Fukuyama in October 1989, in which I said, uh, uh, this is not the end of history, obviously not. It's just a resumption of traditional classical history with ethnic conflict, resource wars, secret diplomacy, wars of religion. We're going back to the status quo ante. Yeah, going back to the norm, the historical norm. Of but in terms of your question, I became increasingly, why even, even within the sort of, even when I remained almost kind of a Bukharan-like figure, if you know what that would mean, a kind of a critic from within for a while. Eventually, it became impossible. I was increasingly critical. So, so I'm saying, look, we, we've done these various things in uh, in Britain, and most of them before the full tax was so She achieved most of what she said she did. She'd reduce inflation. She'd you know, most, limit the powers of the trade unions. She achieved most. But Russia is completely different. None of this is going to work in a society that's had totalitarianism for 70 years. Yeah. This is insanity. This is madness. By then, it had turned into the kind of universal dogma and also a kind of project of social engineering and of exactly the sort I rejected and went into the right to avoid. So you object to ideologies, don't you? That, yes. That's yes. What, what life at its heart. Yes. Anything yes. that, yes. any system that believes it can fully explain, let alone remould human, human experience, human society. That's, that's the thing that and which really... thinks it can understand history yeah. and thinks that history has a certain kind of direction 
which is supposed to be good. Why it should be good, I don't know. Actually, I mean, it might be a direction, but I don't think there is. But so, in the light of that, let, let, let's go to some of the criticisms yeah. that people often level at you. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to level the, the traditional kind of nihilistic criticism because I don't believe it, and I know your, your response to it. But there's a more interesting criticism that is often leveled at value pluralism, which is that if you have two cultural systems that are antagonistic, how do you ever get one to talk to another and, and if there is no kind of framing ethical system to show that one is wrong? And that sometimes you do need to do that when you come across culturally embedded practices that are, we would describe them today as violations of human rights. FGM or, or Suti uh, in the 19th century or in some senses slavery in the ancient world. These are culturally deeply embedded. They're just normal. Oh, some, in America? Some, yeah. Some, you know, some human beings are just born as slaves. End of. How do you ever undermine those deeply cultural practices? Well, you see, my value pluralism is not a doctrine of unrestricted value relativism. Postmodern or modern relativism of that kind, value relativism, is associated with the idea, or even has it at the time, that there's no human nature. So they say that human beings are cultural constructions. And I don't hold that at all. In other words, my view of value pluralism is more like a pre-modern view, an ancient view, which is that uh, the view you find in Greek drama, if you like, which is that certain goods and certain bads are integral to the human condition or the human situation or even the human animal. So what would those goods and bads be? Well, I don't think you can draw a complete list, but you could, I don't, humiliation can't be a good. And that's a, that's a rather profound... So these are universal goods and yes, bads, they're not yes, local ones, they are, parochial they're ones. They're universal, I think they're... But doesn't that nudge you in the direction of some sense of humanity as a coherent being, as a coherent entity? Um, it, if they're all shared, if those values are all shared... Yes, but they all conflict. And particular ways of life can be partly individuated or defined by specific virtues that you don't find, I mean, specific moral conceptions that you don't find in other... But a different way of thinking of um, the plurality of ways of life in the human world is to say that it arises from different settlements among values that are universal. One of the ways I arrived at this view uh, the view that there are uh, uh, human and generic goods and bads. Many years ago when I lived in California, I used to go to zoos in California and observe the animals. And I noticed that in good zoos, the animals looked and behaved completely differently from the ones they, from how they did in bad zoos. Yep. They had different coats, luxuriously walked up and down happily. And so they were just obviously thriving. Mm. Bad zoos where, for example, gorillas would be kept in enclosures on concrete. They looked sad, they looked depressed, and there were other evidences they didn't breed or, or didn't breed well. So, I, in other words, their natures weren't culturally elastic. It wasn't the case that if you kept them in these zoos for generations, they would adapt to them and become happier. It was not the case. They'd simply be unhappy forever. Humans are, in that respect, not different from other animals. Uh, that there is, there is an objective component to their well-being. Different difference comes in that human beings are more fertile in the creation of languages and of ways of life, and I would say of religions. Um, so they produce many different ways of life, partly from resolving the conflicts between these um, goods that are, um, um, if you like, part of their nature, goods and bats. So, for example, it's open to a it's open to a human group or a human settlement to. Um, 
make a variety of different settlements, choices even if they meet as some kind of group, uh, some kind of um, deliberative group uh, between uh, security and, and liberty. I mean, modern liberals always say that the two go together, but they obviously don't. I mean, you know, we might be able to have a more secure society if we if we did what the present regime in China is doing, which is to impose pretty well universal surveillance. If you have a panopticon, which is what they're building, then, and you check, and you know, because you phase out cash partly, you know what everybody's buying, you can work out that, you can work out that, then you might have a society that's in important respects more secure. But you'll also have one in which the good of liberty... A lot less free. You're a lot less free. Yeah. So how do you make these decisions? I mean, the real argument, I guess, again, against party pluralism is that it doesn't, or the one that many people make anyway, is that it doesn't give you much to guidance as to how to resolve these conflicts. Yes. But the profound, the profound truth in it is this. I think there's a story, I mean, I told me, a true story, however, told me by Isaiah. There was a government department in the Second World War uh, he knew about uh, that um, discovered it had a, uh, a mole in it who uh, was leaking information to the enemy. And the government minister turned up one day in the department and said, I'm going to do something which is very wrong and very unjust, but I believe right. Let's say 20 people in front of me. She says, it's a terrible thing I'm going to do because only one of you is guilty of this, but we know that one of you is. But it will take too long we may never find out who it is. We haven't got the means. In the meantime, brave men and women are being parachuted into occupied and dying under torture. And if we close down the one of you who's leaking it, some people still will look fewer, and it will advance the war effort, and we'll be less likely to surrender to this terrible form of power. Mm. So I fired the whole lot. And that was a terrible thing, because none of them would ever get a government job again. There'd be a cloud over every single one, a security cloud. So they ruined the lives of 19 out of, I'm, I'm inventing the figures, but yeah. 19 out of 20 people. But he said it's the right thing to do. Mm. Now, that's, as it were, the tragic element of value pluralism. It also has a non-tragic element. But the tragic element is this, that sometimes you can only do right by doing wrong. Now, if you're a utilitarian, you just do the thing which is maximally produces the most good. So Bentham wouldn't have had a problem with that story, no, would he? No. At all. So, well, he wouldn't have come and appeared and said, I'm going to do something wrong. Uh, he would have said, I'm going to do... But the problem about that, you can always do that, but I think that impoverishes human experience. In human experience, we do know, we recognise uh, almost pre-reflectively when we're doing something that promotes maybe more well-being in this, or less ill-being, less, Ill, less damage, mm. but which actually is unjust. Mm. We know that. Mm. So you can always resolve ethical dilemmas by eliminating some of the elements. Mm. So if you just eliminate fairness, mm. but you haven't so, actually resolved it. But what I don't understand, I mean, if you're an outdoor Kantian, what will they say, well, I've asked something, well, he should have resigned. Well, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> so that just everyone loses that really, don't they? Then clean hands. Yeah, yeah. But that just hands it over to someone else. Yeah, yeah. What does that person do? Yeah. Do they all resign? Yeah. <laughs> so there's no one. That, I mean, yeah. in other words, we don't have a policy at all. We're in the middle of a life or death war. They all resign. Mm. 
It's absurd. So, so anyway, that, so that's the but that's the aspect of um, value pluralism that I think is a deep truth. But it's also the one that people don't like because it means it's kind of selfish choice kind of thing. Yeah. So I mean, that's fascinating. But I, I I detect in your retelling of that story two two elements that are fundamentally consistent with the Christian worldview. One of which I think you will agree with the other one. You won't. So the first one is that in a fallen world. Yes, so yes. many choices yes, are agonistic yes. like this. Orwell once made the point that most human moral decisions are between one wrong and another. Or one bad and, and another. Yeah, reason. that's right. And, 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 and that is an example of that. And, but also, your intuition that however pragmatic his decision was, it was still unjust, seems to me predicated on the idea that there is a duty owed to persons on account of their dignity. Let's use, let's use a, a weasel word there, on their, on their dignity. And by sacking them all, you're actually abusing the proper yes, responsibility. But you could, yes, but you see, I guess what, where I differ from the Christian view is that uh, I suppose um, you might say, well, it could, that idea of uh, their dignity could only be given a Christian foundation, but uh, that's one thing. But a different thing is you might say that, I mean, in, in the background of this is the idea that in some, there is some background idea. You see, this is again very changing. One of the one of the responses to my Christians of progress is, well, no one thinks we can get perfection. Terribly shallow. Uh, because the big thing about my view, which I think in this respect, in other respects, it's not entirely the same as Berlin, but in this respect it is, we have no clear conception of perfection. We don't know for what perfection would mean. We might think we do. The social engineers thought they did. We'll have central heating and inside loose and blah, 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 and so on. The trouble is, we have no clear conception of it, and on a radical value pluralism view, we can't. This, in other words, the difference between my value pluralism, which is, is inconsistent with theism, radical value pluralism is inconsistent with theism, is that the conflicts go all the way down. All the way down. But then again, I wouldn't, you see, I would say, going back to, I mean, some notion of justice or fairness is some notion. I mean, it may have been rendered compatible, as it was even in Christian cultures, with slavery and so on. But some notion of justice is pretty well pan-cultural. Well, precisely. So again, that uh, that nudges you towards the idea that there is some co- that there is some. But coherent... not an agent. But not an agent. And not all, an agent. Not a human. Not a collective human. Not a. Oh not no! Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair. That's uh, not a collective. Uh, not humanity mm. doing things. Mm. But also uh, for a different reason, which is that what these different human groups are in individuals will be doing, will be forging, fashioning, making temporary provisional settlements among these contending goods and bads. Mm. And they generate different ways of life. Yes. Now, yes. some of the ways of life, you know, I wrote one of my early books, which was still an academic book, but not that early, I think it was two, came out in 2000 or 2001, The Modest Revenue Book. Mm. I said, uh, uh, there are many ways of, in which humans can flourish. There are also many ways in which they can't flourish. Uh, so, there, I mean, there can be some ways of life in which very few of these goods are promoted. So it's not that really bad ways of life emerge from tragic conflicts between goods and bad. You can have ways of life in which hardly any of the goods are developed at all. So that gives you a kind of cross-cultural standard of comparison. Yeah. So the, so the difference I'm trying to make, which I, is that there can be universal human values, but not a universal human morality. Because a morality tells you how to resolve these. these. So you could say of Nazism, what were the goods that it realized? 
unanswered question. What were the bads? Lots and lots of bads, to an extreme degree. And you could say that, I think, about slave society, too. I was reading recently about one of you know, the little known, not little, little investigated, one of the worst was the, the Bel not the Belgians, the um, Portuguese, Belgians, Belgian Congo was terrible, of course, but the uh, Portuguese um, slave markets in Angola and went on for ages and ages, backed up by terrible wars. So I think you can make cross-cultural judgments and I'm strongly opposed to cultural holism of the sort that some of the more radical postmodern philosophers, have, some of them at least, have toured with, or people that theorists, some radical theorists, multicultural, which is to imagine that cultures are sort of hermetically sealed, yeah. can't talk to each other. First of all, it's never even been like, it wasn't like that even in the ancient world, in ancient Europe, Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome, Christians coexisted with Jews and um, Mithraists and polytheists and lots of different languages of us, but it's never been like that. So there are universal human values to pick yes. up your phrase, oh, yes. but then they are configured and, and reconfigured in yeah. local ways, yes. which then rub up against one another. And then you have to find some way of, um, yeah. uh, of uh, resolving that, that those, those conflicts. And I think much of the time that can be done by the pursuit of modest revenge, but I've never argued that the pursuit of modest vivendi is always possible. It wasn't possible in 1940. Fight and die yeah. if you have to. Yeah. Because the, the Although Chamberlain and, and, and um, what's his most name? And Lord Halifax would have gone for modest vivendi. Most of the nation. Yeah. Again, it was chance that got out of concept. If, if Churchill had fallen down a flight of stairs a few days before, yeah. we'd have had Halifax and a shameful peace, and we could still have a Nazi Europe because I'm not convinced that Nazism had within it the possibilities to reform that even Soviet communism did in Gorbachev, which led to its eventual un unraveling, although we've now got um, <laughs> yes. Putin, yeah. which so, is a different story, go on. So, what I was going to say, in our last few minutes, let's, let's get a bit more contemporary, because yeah. um, you know, you, as, you, as you have said elsewhere, that you, you know, wrote about and torture and then Abu Ghraib happened, and you wrote False Dawn, um, critiquing kind of neoliberal ideology, and then ten years later we have the crash and so on and so forth. Now we're ten years after that. Yeah. So uh, we, we are living in, I think, more than unusually unsettled I agree. times. It's at, not just our subjective moment. sense. It really is like a period, maybe. Yeah. Not, not quite like the 30s. Well, I was going to say it's not the 1930s, but 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 we're certainly moving away from a, a more stable. It's more like the 1910s, actually. Well, that's 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 a, that's <laughs> a worrying. Even, that's a worrying. But in the sense that I mean, the 30s were unusual in that there were these vast international political movements, communism, and even to some extent, although people now think of it as being purely nationalistic, which it wasn't, mm. Nazism and fascism. Mm. There were, in some, many, in some contexts, mm. an exaggeration of nationalism, but many others they weren't. As I pointed out many times in my writings, the Nazi intelligentsia, uh, although they were racists of the worst possible kind, often had despised nations, particularly small ones, mm. ones that were made up of allegedly inferior people. Mm. And their new Europe, would be what wouldn't be one in which um, uh, nations were at the centre. It would be post-national. Indeed, after the Second World War, Oswald Mosley, uh, his program was called Europe a Nation. <laughs> he was a radical Eurofederalist. Euro right. <laughs> That's a political journey for you, isn't it? Well, he favoured that. He favoured that during the war and before the war. It was just that before the war, he was going to be Hitler. Yeah. Who embodied this? 
uh, uh, some nations are of no importance, they can be enslaved, some will be exterminated, of course, some groups, but others are of no importance, or they'll be moved, or, um, except after the war, he said it could be achieved in peaceful, peaceful means. But one difference from the 30s is that we don't have these gigantic movements, except, I suppose, you could say that we have important religious, transnational well, religious movements. Well, that's precisely where I was going to go to, by way of, kind of coming into land, because I remember reading an article you wrote for New Statesman a number of years ago saying that we need to shelve our marks and um, our uh, das Kapital and whatever else, because the era of secular religions in that kind of massive significant mm. way is over mm. the text that will influence the 21st century are the religious ones yeah now we don't need to be reminded of the fact that you know they have historically and even quite re recently influenced history very very negatively and so one of the things that you know we do at theos and the church times does in its own way is to try and make sure that if we are moving into an era in which it's not religions, not well, if, if you like, the solution to bad religion is not no religion, no, no. it's good religion, yeah, it's yeah. thought for yeah. or considered. Yeah. Um, you know, is that something you agree with? And, and yes. what's, your, what's your sense of the well, trajectory Well, remember, the, there? The, the point of my book is to say that there are many kinds of religions and many kinds of atheism. Mm. And the point, as I say right at the start of the book, which you will remember, is not to recommend any particular type of atheism, mm. even the ones I like. I mean, I'm open about the ones I like, or identify with, so I like the last two, mm. and I dismiss the previous five. Uh, quite strongly, sometimes. <laughs> quite strongly, yes. But what then happens is, what, what for the, it's left to the reader, uh, to, he or she, to the, decide how to take it. Mm. So someone could say, um, uh, and I think it's important to say, well, um, this doesn't make me abandon Christianity or, uh, or Judaism or Islam or other forms of monotheism, it might make me even more monotheistic or more Christian or more Jewish or more etc. More, more, more Muslim than I, than I was. And that I would hope that would um, that would be one of one of one of the results. I mean, to give an example, I mean, one of the things where I think some modern Christians have gone astray is in trying to meet modern science on its own ground by developing counter-sciences. Fundamental Intelligent error. Intelligent design. Yeah, things. fundamental yeah. error. Uh, um, because it gives the whole thing, it, it really yields to the 19th century positivist view that um, religion is a primitive form of science. So whenever there's an advance in science, religion retreats. So that's a kind of error. Certainly I, I would be sympathetic to the view that, that you're saying, but of course it doesn't mean that I would myself be a Christian or that I no. would, it could be Buddhism, it could be one of these many different types of religion. And of course I have pointed to the, the blurred border land, border, borders between uh, 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 prophetic theology and, myst and, mm. and, and skeptical mysticism mm. as well. So the target of the book is um, not so much monotheism, although I'm not a monotheist, it is secular monotheism. Or degenerated, bastardized versions of, of monotheism. Yes, yes. I mean, my view to I've said this many times to them, they don't take it very well. I mean, I don't debate them. I think debating is a, I have in the past once or twice, but it's a waste of time because I don't think debate is a way to get a truth. It's adversarial for one thing. And secondly, um, I found that more than most of the religious people I've met, um, evangelical atheists are um, rigidly uh, dogmatic and they think that in an anti-empirical way and in a way which is not used to doubt whereas 
Christianity and Judaism and others doubt all along, from day one almost, um, coexisting with it. Um, but, and also there's another reason, and this would separate me in, in a sense from universalistic monotheism and from Christianity, is I don't care what they do. Do you not, though? This was, I, I, I care. I'm protesting too much. That you, you, you wouldn't write with the passion that you do in some cases if you genuinely were indifferent to people holding crap ideas. Well, there are aspects of the way they promote their views that I dislike strongly. Yeah. They're bullies. They themselves are, comp almost most of them, the ones I, I've read and so on, or have read in the past, they know little or nothing about the history of religion or even of Christianity. Nothing. So that gives them what would normally be a disadvantage, but I think is to them an advantage. It's partly willful ignorance, because if they went into the history of theology and the history of these religions more closely, they would see that they're incomparably more diverse, almost inexhaustibly more rich. Complicated, yeah. Complicated yeah, yeah. And, rich. and they would also see that atheism has been more complicated and rich than they think. Um, uh, but I dislike their bullying, I dislike their authoritarianism. But I don't think they can be redeemed. <laughs> I think they're uh, several senses. Yeah, yeah. I think they're. I think they're mostly incurable yeah. in their in their dogmatism because they're, they're in a sense their hold on life, as I put it rather brutally. Um, the sense of their lives depends on being immersed in this nonsense. Their hold on their lives depends on these absurdities, which, which, by the way, I mean the absurdities of rationalism are more absurd than the miracles of religion, because the miracles of religion are supposed to violate laws of nature. That's what miracles are. Whereas if you're a rationalist, you don't believe in that. And yet they hold that these preposterous views uh, about history and about, uh, well, give me I mean, Dennett said, you can find it online if you look. I think it was about 10 years ago. He said, fundamentalism will disappear quite quickly, more quickly than anyone will, because of the mobile phone. Because of the mobile phone. Yeah. I've heard the similar argument about the internet. It's not, not really working out, not is anymore. it? <laughs> not, not anymore. Yeah. But, ten, but you know, anyone who even ten years ago knew anything about fundamentalism or terrorism, you know that they use mobile phones all the time, and that they set up bombs through mobile phones, and then ISIS later on it, it projects its terror through videos. Anyone who can think like that has no understanding. Either a fundamentalism or war or terrorism, but, but that's part of their worldview and also of their conceit. And the reason I would, the reason I mean, I, the reason I have a certain, I mean, they are very rancorous in the way they write. I may be rather mocking and some combative and sometimes um, vitriolic in the way that I right against them. It's not so much because of uh, what they think, though. I think it's a tissue of absurdities for the I mean, it's kind of warmed over Comtean positivism mm. uh, without actually the depth. I mean, it, it, at least Comte, I mean, he produced a ridiculous pseudo-religion. At least he recognized religion was necessary. Mm. At least he understood that. Mm. They don't even understand that. It's, it's their claim to possess a uh, kind of knowledge which elevates them above the generality of humankind and all religious, all religious believers, over Pascal, <laughs> over Saint Augustine, over Maimonides, over Chester. Come on, I mean, uh, uh, it's absurd. So that's why it's their assumption of intellectual and moral superiority. That, that's so. But otherwise, I don't care. I, I don't. I don't care what. I mean, I'm not intending my, these books. They're not written to persuade 
new atheists of anything mm. or to dissuade them from anything. They're written for anyone who has enough of a sliver of doubt or questioning in their minds mm. to wonder whether the prevailing secular worldview might have cracks in it. And so if you're interested in peeping through some of those cracks, read the book. If you're not, some, don't bother. You're into encouraging doubt. Yes. If, you, if, you're, if you're not interested in that, don't read the book. <laughs> Just read your own uh, sacred text. Your own sacred text, yeah. Dawkins, uh, Dennett, etc. Yeah. Just read those. So, and that is a sort of fundamental view, which is, why, again, one of the reasons I don't debate these people, which is... Um, I don't care what they think. Also, this I, I don't believe they're genuinely rational. Mm. I mean, a genuinely rational person would take arguments and would yield on some of his views. So, I mean, people have pointed out to me, well, you know, in, uh, there must be some developments in human life which are altogether good. And I started by saying, yes, uh, anesthetic dentistry. I've moved on. You may have a contraception. A third might even be penicillin. I don't know whether it's running out. So there are some technologies that are almost entirely You'd have to have a really perverse philosopher, I don't know, a modern Heide, another Heidegger or something, to, to find deep meaning in toothache. <laughs> that it was part of the human story that we should have got to have toothache. Um, um, so there are some technologies, but not really, and certainly not the internet. Except evidently, yeah. It's become a vast surveillance machine, for one thing. So it, it's, it's, it's to provoke, the, my books are intended not to persuade anyone of anything or to persuade, dissuade them from anything, but to trigger a process of thought which will be different in different readers and lead to different results. It might lead to Christians becoming more Christian, Jews becoming more practicing, more Jewish, Muslims, etc., Buddhists. Or, might lead. Um, it's true that my criticisms of predominant forms of atheism are often so harsh that it's very unlikely that they'll go away. Affirmed in their atheism. But they might. Who knows? Because the most the most militant forms of modern secular rationalism are the most irrational. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first ten issues for just ten pounds. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.